for mm-hmm. me, the Oxford mm-hmm. comma was was a way for me to exclude people and to say, oh, you don't even know about this thing? Ha ha, you fool. Like, look, you know, let me pity your lack of education. Hello, Internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author of fiction and nonfiction, and also almost done here. This is our last episode. Um... My producer, Blake, and I have talked about it. We've decided, you know, we've taken this concept as far as it'll go. Uh, We're moving on to other things. Um, Specifically, I'm moving on to uh, being a full-time novelist. Um, So I'm going to talk about that a little more at the end of this episode. There's a whole big story uh, on, you know, why I'm doing that um, that actually ties directly into the conversation you're about to hear, interestingly enough. But real quick, I do want to lead off with a quick plug that if you want to keep up with me in the future, um, this show's going off the air. I'm not on social media hardly at all anymore. I I don't know if I'm ever going to return to social media. Uh, But what I would really appreciate if you want to keep up with me is if you would go and sign up for my Substack newsletter um, to receive that in your email inbox. Uh, Substack, if you're unfamiliar, it is a blogging service and also a newsletter service. It's kind of nice um, because you publish a post and it appears on the site and it goes directly into subscribers' email inboxes. Um, So go to luketharrington.substack.com. That's just going to be my online hub going forward. Uh, You can read my posts there. You can sign up to uh, get them in your email inbox. And if you sign up to get them in your email inbox, I, as a way of saying thank you, will send you e-copies of both of my published books. So that is my award-winning novel, Ophelia Alive, and my award-winning nonfiction debut, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. You will get both of those for free in ebook format just for signing up for my Substack. Um, and the Substack is free as well. It's just my monthly thoughts on whatever's on my mind. Usually stuff like horror novels, musicals, and the publishing industry. I just try to publish something kind of fun and thought-provoking once a month uh, just to keep in touch with my loyal readers or my casual readers, as the case may be. So I will talk a little bit more about what I'm going to be doing going forward and why uh, at the end of the episode. So please stick around for that. But for the moment, uh, just please go to luketharrington.substack.com and enter your email address and you will have no problem staying in touch with me going forward. All right. Well, As for this episode, uh, Blake, my producer, and I thought it would be pretty cool to uh, bring things full circle. Um, One of the very first episodes I did on this show way back in 2019 was on the subject of the Oxford comma. Uh, Now, if you don't know what that is, the Oxford comma is the comma before and in a list of three or more things, right? Like, I like pop, comma, chips, 
comma, and burgers, right? I don't know why I just said pop. I never say pop. I'm Midwestern, though. I guess I'm supposed to say pop. Um, soda, if you prefer. Anyway, in that list, pop, comma, chips, comma, and burgers, that comma after chips is the Oxford comma. Now, some people feel very strongly about this comma. Some people feel it shouldn't be there. Some people feel it should be there. It's one of those things people argue about a lot on the internet, which is why I thought it would be fun to do an episode uh, early on in the series, uh, you know, just about something a little lighter. And the guest I had on had converted from anti-Oxford comma to pro-Oxford comma. So I thought it would be interesting to close out the series with a guest who went the other direction, used to be an Oxford comma stan, and is now an Oxford comma skeptic, as I should say, am I. Um, so I talked to J.R. Foresteros. He is a pastor down in Texas, also has a lot of uh, writing credits to his name, among them on Tor.com, Tor being the, the famous uh, fantasy publisher, um, which has a very good blog, uh, I should say. Um, so yeah, without further ado, I will turn you over to my conversation with J.R. Foresteros, and after that, I'll see you on the other side for a short explanation of what I'm up to next. JR, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Luke. A long-time listener, first-time caller, so glad to be here. Yeah, so glad to hear that. JR, of course, is the teaching pastor at Catalyst Community Church, which is, I don't know where you are in the... Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas. All right. <laughs> Listeners can't see it, but he's shooting the finger guns in the air. This is a genuine Texas experience. What am I leaving out? Anything else you do? Uh, I'm an author. I have a book called Empathy for the Devil with InterVarsity Press. I'm a podcaster. I co-host a fascinating podcast. I have bylines at Sojourners and Tor.com and Relevant and a few, Think Christian and a few other places. So general, just dork that writes things and puts them on the internet. So, <laughs> Well, you uh, said you'd be interested in coming on the show and talking about the Oxford comma, one of the most controversial punctuation marks there is. Which I was saying before we started recording, I have already done one episode on the Oxford comma, and I, I genuinely thought it was one of the better episodes I've done, but it also was one of my least downloaded episodes. So <laughs> I'm really excited to just kind of shove more Oxford comma down the internet's throat and make them deal with it. Are you excited? I'm so excited. I, <laughs> I am very much the kind of person that probably by the way I present myself to the world paints a big target on his back. Uh, so I'm just, I'm fun to pick on because I feel like I'm relatively good natured and I can take it uh, as well as I can dish it out. I hope, I think that's the story <laughs> I tell myself. Uh, and I don't know that there is a single thing that my community, both uh, local and uh, internet, enjoys giving me more crap about than my wholesale disdain for the Oxford comment. <laughs> so, uh, I found the Oxford comma is very, very popular on the internet. And I, I think I said this the last time I had a guest on to talk about it, but I personally am kind of agnostic about the Oxford comma. I think when I'm editing or when I'm writing, I tend to just go with whatever the style guide says, you know? Um, but on a personal level, my thinking is always like, 
if your sentence needs the Oxford comma or conversely needs to not have the Oxford comma to make sense, you probably just didn't write a very good sentence, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so I don't personally, I don't understand people who have very strong feelings about it. However, I am extremely interested to meet someone who has very strong feelings against it. Because like I said, on the last episode I did about this, I feel like the, the big, like the st Oxford comma stands are a lot more common than the Oxford comma haters. Like, am I wrong about that? Or is that just you're like- not, You're not, um, and I guess, <laughs> I guess I should clarify, you'll hear this as we get into this. Uh, if, you, if you really press me to the wall and ask for my take on it, it that's actually very similar to yours. Okay. Um, you know, everyone likes to trot out the, the news story of the lawsuit where some company lost $50 million because yeah. there yeah. wasn't, uh, and they're like, see, see, and I say, <laughs> yeah, do you understand that the point of legal language is to be as dense and impenetrable as possible? <laughs> like that is, that is actually the point of it. So yes, in language that is designed to be confusing and impenetrable, the most specificity possible is good and you should use it. But to your point, uh, it's nearly never essential to communicate clearly in the vast majority of writing that the vast majority of English language speakers. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very much a, if you don't need it, don't need it. <laughs> this was, um, yeah, this, this uh, case actually was pretty interesting. It's been a while since I read about it. I believe it was about, it's about people loading milk onto trucks, right? Or something like that. Um, yeah, it was whether... delivery drivers, and yeah, and it was it was there ended up being some kind of a lawsuit. Yeah, again, it's difficult to understand because it's legal, <laughs> and you're like, wait, what exactly is the problem here? Someone left yeah. the comma out, so you know. So, and I, I, I'm going off the top of my head, but I think the law, I think the law as written said something like income made thing thing comma thing comma and packing and shipping or something like that is not. Was it not taxable or was it, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the law was, but it was like, as it was written, admittedly did read ambiguously, but I, I wrote an, I, I read an op-ed on it where the, the author of the op-ed pointed out that like, hey, you know, the legal style guide that they were using when they wrote the law is clearly against the Oxford comma. So it shouldn't, it should have been written as it was. It's, it's just, um, I don't know. So that was interesting. Well, um, but even this, right? Like when we talk about style guide, uh, we they're not actually style guides, they're style mandates, right? Right. Um, I think about I always like to think about Pirates of the Caribbean and the Pirates Code. And it's like they're really more like guidelines. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not true with style guides. Uh, yeah. you know, when when my wife was getting her master's in social work, she had to use APA format. And mm -hmm. it didn't matter if her paper was uh, coherent and comprehensible without the specifics if she she actually lost points a uh, significant number of points if she did not uh, match the style guide so it's not mm -hmm. a guide it's a mandate <laughs> right um right and, and i think people forget that when we're talking about language uh yeah. and, and i think i think what matters in the oxford comma conversation we'll frame it kindly right uh mm -hmm. is is the purpose of language and that's that's what i get all bit out of shape about um you know, in my journey from being an off Oxford comma stand to someone who now uh, will 
will vehemently argue that it is a uh, an unnecessary piece of punctuation in the vast majority of cases uh, was a lot because of my evolving understanding of what language is and what its purpose is. So, sure. uh, yeah. Yeah. Why don't we get into it then? Um, tell me, when were you in Oxford comma Stan and why were you in Oxford comma Stan? So I was in Oxford comma Stan uh, all through high school and college. Uh, probably because I was told it was the rule and knowing the grammar rules uh, made me feel superior to people that didn't know them. <laughs> so uh, it was it was both a logical thing and that I understood the logic behind having that piece of punctuation. Uh, and it was also an emotional thing in that knowing uh, knowing how to wield language well made me feel uh, intelligent in a way that, uh, you know, uh, certainly a lot of other high school kids weren't, so. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, to back up real quick, just for listeners who are still with us, but have no idea what the Oxford <laughs> comma is, which I'm sure is like two of you, but just, just so we're all on the same page. The Oxford comma, also sometimes referred to as the serial comma, is the comma before and in a list of three or more things, right? So, I like dogs, comma, cats, oh, no, comma, right, yeah. and sheep. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there are some, there are some style guides, which is, you know, things that recommend how you write that say you should have a comma before and, and some that, some that say you shouldn't. And for some reason, it's one of the most controversial things on the internet. Um, <laughs> because, one of the, uh, go ahead. I was to say, because you could say something like, I like the dogs, uh, Susan and uh, David. Right. Right. And so you could say, I like the dogs, comma, Susan, comma, and David to make it clear that there are dogs that you like, a person named Susan and a person named David. If right. you take the Oxford comma out, it then becomes somewhat ambiguous. Are the dogs named Susan and David or are these still three different people? And to yeah. your point earlier, if it's really that unclear, maybe consider rewording the sentence. Right. Well, because there are examples as previously discussed on the show, there there are examples of sentences where the Oxford comma makes it more ambiguous. Like if you say, I like the dog, comma, Susan, comma, and David, then it's like, are we talking about a dog and two people or are we talking about a dog named Susan and yeah. David, right? So there are, I mean, the stands and the haters can always trot out sentences that they think prove their point. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, Luke, I mean, I have my own answer to this, but but I think this is this is a problem in a lot of debates where we can all bring anecdotal evidence to the table that supports our position. Like, how do you go about making decisions when that's the case? Because obviously we can't just point to the extreme, you know, outlier cases, or I guess we can, but then we just you know, throw <laughs> cases at each other and see who runs out first. Yeah. Um... Wow. Okay. So I'm getting interviewed now. Um, Sorry, I know this is your show. I, I'm just genuinely curious about that. No, no, I appreciate the question. Um, so like I said, you know, I, I do a fair amount of uh, freelance editing. Um, and, you know, typically, because most of the books I edit are written for a popular audience. So they're edited to the Chicago style manual, uh, which does recommend the Chicago or the Chicago comma, what am I talking about? Which does recommend the Oxford comma. Um, so I will typically make sure that those include the Oxford comma. Um, now, in the rare cases, 
when the Oxford comma introduces ambiguity, like the very contrived sentence I just gave you. Um, I think the other classic one is to my parents, comma, Ayn Rand and God or whatever. Anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, like in the rare case when the Oxford comma actually introduces ambiguity, what I need to do is reword the sentence, right? So that it can use the Oxford comma and still make sense. Um, and I, I think... Um, maybe we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but I feel like the value of a style guide um, is to enforce consistency, right? I mean, like there's a certain type of reader that if they see one sentence with the serial comma and then the next sentence without it, that'll like mess them up, right? And that's the value of having a style guide. Um, but whether or not you use the Oxford comma doesn't seem all that important to me as long as you're consistent about it within the same book, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think about uh, the fact that Cormac McCarthy famously hates quotation, hated RIP, mm -hmm. um, quotation marks, right? And I remember the first time I read a Cormac McCarthy book, and none of the dialogue was offset by quotation marks. And I had an immediate, like, uh, almost instinctual reaction to say, like, I can't tell what's happening. Mm. But then I just tried to read it, and I realized, no, actually, I can. It's fine. I can tell when people are talking. I can tell who's talking, which isn't always true looking at you, Ernest Hemingway. Um, <laughs> he, because he wrote in such a way that it did not require this punctuation, right? Mm -hmm, like he, mm -hmm. he uh, and, and so I think you're right. Like one of the things that Oxford comic gets into for us is pressing into style of writing. And to your point, Oxford comic came around in the first place as a desire to help uh, as as we became a more uh, global and interconnected world, it was a desire for consistency. When you go back and try to read Old English or Middle English even, you see that there was no standard spelling. There was right. no standard punctuation. There was no punctuation, right? I, uh, I learned Greek and Hebrew, and they didn't have, uh, Hebrew didn't even have vowels, right? It's just all <laughs> consonants all smashed together. Greek yeah. didn't have punctuation uh, in the, for the most part, and and so, like, introducing crazy liberal things like spaces between words, right, <laughs> um, at one point was considered vulgar and crude and, you know, a dumbing down language and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it was all done for the sake of accessibility, right, being able right. to understand and, and, and opening up these texts to more readers uh, being able to expand them out. And I think that's what, certainly that was not how I approached using the Oxford comma. Um, that wasn't how I approached grammar in general. Um, that wasn't how I approached language uh, as something that was designed to make things more accessible. I was very much a gatekeeper, right? For mm -hmm, me, the Oxford mm -hmm. comma was was a way for me to exclude people and to say, oh, you don't even know about this thing? Ha ha, you fool. Like, you know, let me pity your lack of education. Um, <laughs> again, I'm being uh, somewhat hyperbolic there, but uh, it was it was sort of an ugly uh, sentiment that was that was really at the root of my like wholehearted and fanatical embrace of the Oxford. Not For to sure. be dramatic in a show about punctuation. Well, and to be clear, that really goes back to what you were saying about legalese, right? Legal writing, professional writing, academic writing. These are like you said, often designed to be very obscure to shut out the wrong kind of people, right? To protect, <laughs> essentially to protect the careers of the people that write it, right? If they make sure that- it, 
you know, I've never been a lawyer, but I was in academia. I got a master's degree in a state state university uh, where we had to write and re- you know, read certainly all this stuff. And I never understood why academic writing couldn't be accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the books that win the academic awards year after year after year, they actually are super accessible. And like, <laughs> that's why people like them so much is that they combine like this really excellent scholarship with uh, comprehensible language. Yeah. And so yeah. it doesn't, you don't feel like you're, you don't feel like you're running a mental marathon just to make it through a chapter. Uh, you finish <laughs> the chapter and you think, wow. I learned and maybe I laughed at a couple of jokes. Maybe I actually enjoyed myself and that didn't actually cheapen the academics in the book. It actually enhanced it. Right. Uh, and that's for some reason though, that's a, a shift that the Academy really doesn't want to make. And I think you're, I think you're right. Uh, very, a lot of it is really about gatekeeping. Well, and a lot of it is economic too, right? When you consider, you know, how many available positions there are for, professors in the world and how many people would like to be in those positions, right? There is very high demand for academic jobs um, because for some reason we decided to send an entire generation to college. Um, and now we have all these people who can't do anything but <laughs> academic work. <laughs> so there is, there is, there wrong. Are, <laughs> I mean, I'm as over, overeducated as anyone. And that's why I'm sitting here doing a philosophy podcast where we talk about punctuation um, <laughs> but you know, there is very high demand for these positions. And so there are very strong incentives for the people in them to try to keep people out. Um, and you know, I mean, if you want to <laughs> sound academic about it, I think, I think, um, classism is part of the <laughs> equation there. Well, I, absolutely. Um, I mean, even, even ageism, I mean, I just read a fantastic book by a uh, linguist. Uh, her name is Gretchen McCullough, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. The book is called Because Internet. And oh, yeah. uh, have you? Right, is that book on your radar, or have you read it? it, it it's on my. It's on my to read list. I haven't gotten to it yet, but yeah, I, I know. I I'm sure your it. stack of books, like mine, is only like fifteen to thirty. <laughs> deep, so yeah, shame yeah. on you for yeah. Um, <laughs> so so what her her thesis there is that because of the rise of social media, linguists for the first time have the ability to study how language changes in nearly real time. Mm-hmm. Because your only options before the rise of you know Twitter feeds uh, and things like that were to either walk around with a tape recorder in a high school and then mm-hmm. transcribe all of that and then have <laughs> one case study or yeah. go through professionally edited things that have been shaped away from vernacular into a more accepted, which is going to be a you know, skewing older form of language. And so she, uh, she really helped me open my eyes to what it looks like to understand language as this living, evolving, transforming kind of a thing. Mm. Uh, and, then, and yeah, like obviously it happens in youth first, you know, the, the youth change language and then it works its way up to where you hear yeet on Saturday Night Live, right? <laughs> um, so so that I think that is one aspect of it. There's like this ageism thing. There's certainly a class thing. There's also a race thing. I mean, I grew up when Ebonics was first recognized mm-hmm. as an official dialect of English. And up, growing up in my white middle-class suburb, 
all I heard from all of the adults in my life was how stupid that was. And why can't they just learn to speak proper? I'm using scare quotes for people that can't uh, see it. Um, the language, right? Yeah. Uh, when yeah. actually uh, the English that I speak and the English that I spoke when I was in high school is no more similar to the Queen's English of the 18th century <laughs> than Ebonics is, right? Yeah, they're both, for sure. They're both, they're both uh, evolutions of English. Uh, mm -hmm. different cultural ideations. And so, I mean, all of this is a long way from the Oxford comma, but I think it's hanging out <laughs> in the same, you know, in the same playground where we, we, we have to strike a better balance, I think, between letting language evolve and appreciating that language is a living thing. And uh, to our earlier point, having some standards that help us be sure that we can continue to comprehend each other clearly because that's essential for healthy healthy you know neighborly relationships sure for sure all right before we go on i want to go back to something you said earlier um really at the very start of the conversation i think when you said that um for you it was all about you know <laughs> i forget how you phrased it i want to say lording it over people feeling superior that's to fair. people that's fair yeah yeah <laughs> can you um can you go into a little more detail about that like what was the what was so appealing about that? What what do you feel like you got out of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was I was a pretty insecure kid uh, in general, um, and I, you know, I, I wasn't particularly athletic. I wasn't particularly musical. I didn't really have a lot of things that I could like put stock in to feel proud about myself. Mm. And the one thing I did have was that I was kind of the nerdy smart, uh, <laughs> and I was and I was good at languages. You know, I learned, yeah. uh, you know, I learned German all the way through junior high and high school. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things I forget who said it, um, I could Google it real quick, but, uh, you know, someone said, uh, the one who knows one language knows none. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so by learning German, my German teachers had to teach us English grammar so that we could learn German. So I ended up being really, really good at English because I was learning another language. Um, and that was just, that was like just one area where I could like measurably feel like I was achieving uh, and feel some sense of like pride and self-worth. And so, you know, uh, I think like we all do, I kind of gravitated towards that space. And because I was insecure, I did what a lot of insecure people do and built kind of a little uh, ramshackle empire on top of that and tried to make sure that if this is the one thing I'm good at, I'm going to be better at it than you uh, so that I can, <laughs> so that I can feel good in the way that we often feel good by feeling worse about other people. Mm. Yeah. So it was all, that. it was all, it was all really ugly, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how much more you want me to say about that. That was just kind of, that was what that looked like. I think in, in my interior world. Sure. Yeah. Why don't, why don't we move on? Um, why don't you talk about when you changed your mind? I don't know if I could pinpoint a specific moment because once I got to college, uh, I actually discovered the joy of writing for myself. Mm. Uh, I got in, I got into major classes that I enjoyed instead of the general ed stuff. I got to sure. start writing about topics that I cared about and found again that I was actually really good at using words to express what I was thinking and feeling that actually I was often able to have better thoughts once I began to write them out. Uh, and so, you know, I would, I would turn in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in my junior and senior level uh, degree classes, I was, we were having to turn in five page papers, which at the time we were like, oh, five pages, uh, <laughs> double spaced, ah, uh, you know. Um, but at the time, you know, at the time that was like the most we'd ever written. So it was hard. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was turning in 10 to 15 page papers just because I, I and it wasn't because I was overwriting. It was that I was choosing topics that I was interested enough in that I couldn't say everything 
that I thought needed to be said in, in that short amount of time. And my professors uh, would always threaten to deduct points because I was writing too much. But um, <laughs> they actually they really enjoyed my writing as well. And I actually I actually yeah. I graduated with a couple of awards for my writing. Um, you know, so I was I was getting you know that's also when I started blogging back in the days of Zenga. And so again, I was I was getting to craft and put words out there. So you know, all through my late teens and early 20s was when I kind of fell in love with writing. And, and again, what I loved about it was the way it helped me to connect with other people and to communicate ideas. And of course, I made lots of mistakes along the way. Uh, anyone mm-hmm. who was in the world of blogging back then knows that there were often times that uh, I would try to communicate stuff and I would not communicate it clearly. <laughs> I thought I was being clear, but someone else misunderstood, uh, usually unintentionally, right? And so the, the the precursors to the Facebook wars of today were the, yeah. you know, the Sega <laughs> fights and um and so you know going through all of that really helped kind of hone my hone the way I was trying to think about language and it was somewhere along in there that uh being the person who had the best grammar uh stopped being so important hmm. because suddenly I was finding a lot more value in the joy of the exchange of ideas mm. uh, rather than the kind of the, the silo of being the grammar guy. <laughs> um, does, does that make sense? No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like coming to realize that words are fundamentally a means to an end as opposed to something to be, some, you know, something intrinsically valuable, I guess. Um, if I don't know if that's quite the word I'm looking, is intrinsically the word I'm looking for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, I mean, I would um, say that's right. That's right there. Right. Like the, uh, maybe if I had been a poet, it would have been different because I think in poetry, a lot of the artistry comes down to sure. how the words fit together and how they sound and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah. but for me, it was much more about, yeah, like the article or the essay or the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, there it's much more, the, the language is, or I would say the idea is at least as important as the language, if not more. You know, uh, I, I'll probably never be a Michael Chabon who somehow every sentence he writes is the greatest sentence in English ever written. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we got, we all have dreams, right? But, but yeah, it, it, it very much came, it very much became more about uh, how can, how can we communicate? And what I found was that when I, when I focus on the grammar, uh, yeah, actually, I don't know if anyone knows this, but there's not, there's a lot of not very good grammar on the internet. Um, and I found that when I focused on that what I was actually doing was willfully ignoring the meaning of the text I was engaging you know Mm -hmm. whether that was a tweet or an article or a blog post or whatever Um, 999 times out of a thousand I could understand just fine what the person was trying to say right Uh, their Mm -hmm. their bad grammar again a scare quote didn't in any way inhibit me from understanding their language. Uh, and in fact, if, if, I was in a, if I was in a debate with someone or an argument with someone, uh, oftentimes I would resort to uh, picking at nits in their grammar as a way to avoid <laughs> the fact that I didn't have a very good comeback for their argument. You know, and so again, it was it was like it was going back to that darker place where I, that I come from, which was if I can somehow discredit or devalue them, then that means I won, even though their ideas may be less assailable than I'm comfortable admitting. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely had that um, period of my life where I would log on to AOL chat rooms and like correct people's grammar in their yeah. in their comments. It was like. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, one time I, I corrected a what I thought was a pretty bad grammatical mistake and sat back and 
said, oh yeah, this guy's going to be so owned, you know, and then he yes. immediately points out a grammatical mistake and or a spelling mistake, I think, in my comment. And I'm like, <laughs> oh man, ah. cell phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, how dare he? Um, so, I mean, yeah. So was that about something similar? Why did we do that? I, I don't know. Um, Cause I think that's, I, a, that's a, that's a behavior <laughs> we still see a lot today particularly yeah. on the internet right yeah um I don't think you and I invented that yeah no okay so you're getting me to you're getting me to psychoanalyze myself now so I'm sorry is... I know this is your show I apologize <laughs> like I said this show is about 99% therapy for me so um <laughs> no I definitely had this attitude when I was a kid and maybe maybe, I, maybe I'm more like you than I realized at the beginning of this conversation, but I definitely had this attitude when I was a kid that was like, people are dumb and it's their fault they're dumb. <laughs> it's a choice to be dumb. You know, and I, I, I wouldn't have necessarily have articulated it exactly like this, but it's like people choose to be dumb. And if I make fun of them enough, then people will stop being dumb and will solve the problem of dumb people existing in the world <laughs> you were even I don't more know. altruistic than I was yeah I, yeah exactly <laughs> I don't know okay so obviously I was born in 1985 so I was growing up in the early 90s ish and I l- looking back on it now I feel like the movie Home Alone is to bl- was to blame for a lot of my neuroses as a kid hmm. you know because it's this this little kid who outsmarts these dumb criminals and then the criminals get caught yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) criminals get caught and everything's good and for some reason i remember this specifically when i was a kid when i was like eight nine ten i remember very specifically nursing this fantasy of like getting kidnapped by dumb criminals and doing like a ransom or bed chief thing to them you know what i mean like just um like because I, I had this th- idea in my head that the only reason someone would commit a crime is because they're dumb, because they're stupid. And so I need to get com- ki- I mean, kidnapped. I need to get kidnapped so I can make fun of my kidnappers, show them how stupid they are so that they admit they're stupid and repent and change their ways. You know? <laughs> Missionary kidnapping. I think you're onto something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it, it it was maybe a little bit less of a christian outreach thing and much more of a i want to make fun of dumb people thing you know (laughs) i mean listen i won't pretend there's not a a shot in freda in that (laughs) but i don't know like was i just like an unusually like stuck up arrogant kid or was that like how everybody is when they're a kid i don't know or is it home alone's fault it might be home alone's fault (laughs) i mean for sure i think getting left home alone got a lot less scary after home alone (laughs) <laughs> that might have been it that might have been it i don't know um yeah i um gosh i i studied film studies in college that's you know one of my one of my degrees uh, is in film studies and i remember i took a whole course maybe two courses i can't remember on like pre haze code cinema you, are you familiar with the haze code the haze production code that Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah, basically throughout the late 30s to the end of the 50s-ish, even into the 60s, kind of regulated what you could and couldn't show in movies. Um, and the point of point of it, of course, was we need to avoid government censorship by censoring ourselves. Um, 
but yeah, well, I I, rem- I remember one of the uh, one of the things in the Hays Code was that children should never be able to get the upper hand over adults. Um, and of course, the Hays Code eventually ended in the late '60s. And I don't know, it took a couple of decades, but all of a sudden, children getting the upper hand over adults suddenly became like an entire genre of movies in the '80s and '90s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I mean, Home Alone might have been the apex, but there was a whole, there was a whole pile of movies in Home Alone's wake, like Richie Rich, and um, there was one called Blank Check that I'm sure nobody remembers, Matilda, you know, there's a long list of movies just trying to ride the coattails there, and I feel like, you know, obviously, like I said, I very much took that message to heart of... <laughs> <laughs> you need to get the You're upper hand over it. Yeah, so, which makes me think, you know, maybe the people who wrote the Hays Code were onto something. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> maybe their fears were well-founded. I don't know. Um, fortunately, uh, nobody has ever wanted to kidnap me, so I never managed to uh, get myself killed by making fun of my kidnappers. Well, um, and honestly, now that you've put this out on the internet, I'm sure no one will ever want to kidnap you. <laughs> how, how could they How could they withstand your fearsome repartee? It's true. It's true. Yeah. My razor-sharp wit is, is a terror to all potential criminals out there. <laughs> We're so far off track. Um, <laughs> so, Come for the Oxford comma. Come for crime. Uh, stay for crime safety. Tip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you want to get us back on track um you, you were saying that you know it was it was blogging in your college years that led you led you away from the the comma is that is that kind of the end so, of it or? yeah i yeah i mean i i don't remember i i will say this i probably used the oxford comma in grad school because of the style guide we were Turabian chicago you know for the mm-hmm. footnotes which are clearly better than endnotes um <laughs> But yeah, I, 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 you know, I don't remember, I don't have like a conversion moment that I can remember falling to my knees on the Damascus road and abandoning the Oxford comma in favor of the gospel. But um, <laughs> I, I know, you know, I know at some point it happened. And again, I think it was I, even, even in my graduate work, you know, we did, we read a lot of post-colonial theorists. We read a lot of stuff that centered on how, uh, how imposing one cultural idea on other cultures is actually damaging. And language is a big part of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that uh, so many so many Native American languages in the U.S. are extinct because we, uh, we being, you know, white U.S. Americans like me, uh, rounded up Native kids, stuck them in boarding schools, uh, you know, that had the slogan, save the Indian, or kill the Indian, save the man, uh, yeah. made them cut their hair, made them dress in, uh, Christian clothing, which meant European styles, made them uh, use Christian names, which meant white European names, and literally beat them if they spoke their native languages. And now, uh, you know, my 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 church building where I pastor is on Wichita land. We live on Wichita land, and the last fluent Wichita speaker died just like five years ago. Wow! You know? And so, like, there are yeah. people who still know Wichita, but there are no fluent speakers uh, mm-hmm. because of this kind of stuff, right? Because of this, like, like this cultural imper- um, imperialism. And to say that the Oxford comma is cultural imperialism is obviously like extreme uh, and, and <laughs> uh, maybe a bit unfair. Um, but I, I think it does. I think it does get to that same insistence of like w- when we insist on a piece of punctuation uh, for the sake of the rule, what are we actually doing? 
right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, the, the tail is not meant to wag the dog. Uh, mm -hmm. Language rules are there to be sure that we can communicate with each other uh, so that language can continue to be clear and beautiful. And so long as a piece of punctuation serves that end, uh, I think we should use it. But when it doesn't, when we're just uh, doing it for the sake of doing it, or because that's the rule, I think we should question why we're doing that and why we think that feels so important to us. And I certainly don't think, uh, I would also never suggest that every Oxford comma stand is deep down an a-hole like I was in high school <laughs> either. Um, but yeah, I, I just love clean, beautiful pages and the less punctuation on them, the better, you know? Mm. Um, except for the Interabang, I ride for the Interabang. <laughs> I trade it for the Oxford comma in a second. Um, yeah. I'm absolutely with you on that. Um, also, M dashes, just M dashes everywhere. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I will fully confess, I know that there is a difference in the length of the dash, but I never know when to use them. So I just, I just double dash everything. <laughs> I want to respond a little bit, um, and maybe maybe you'll have a comment on this, maybe you won't, but I am curious. Um, you talk about stuff like cultural imperialism, um, and this might be just my experience of the internet, like maybe these, these are just the circles I inhabit, but I feel like the online connections I have who are most likely to be like standing for the Oxford comma, like posting weekly if not daily like i love the oxford comma tend to be like people with blue hair and you know long fingernails neo-pagans who are like <laughs> consider themselves far left and ultra progressive like what's up with that <laughs> people that if you ask them about it would say i'm very much against cultural imperialism <laughs> yeah yeah and that's why i said right i don't want to draw i don't want to draw a hard line between those two impulses right yeah um i think there are some people that uh, they, there are some people who love language the way a mechanic loves a, a, a motor, right? They just mm. love the, they love the guts of it. They may have a poster of a diagrammed sentence on their wall, right? They just, <laughs> they genuinely, like, it's, it's, uh, the grammar is an art, right? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, again, I understand that as someone who loves language, uh, when, when I read, a particularly compelling sentence, again, usually in Michael Chabon, but plenty of other writers, uh, I have been known to take a screenshot of it and print it out and just like sit with it and like meditate on why it is so beautiful. Like what, what happened in this sentence that's so great, you know? Sure. So I get that. And I get that for some of those folks, the Oxford comma being a part of that larger uh, like family of clarity is good. I do also think a lot of people, it is just like a fun, in a, in a, in a world with so many legitimately important things to fight about and the fights <laughs> get so intense and so emotional and so difficult to navigate, having something that is as dumb to fight about as the Oxford comma, where I think <laughs> everyone sort of knows it's sort of a silly conversation. Um, and like, it's, it's fun to take a hard stand because there aren't really any stakes, you know, like it's, 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 it's almost like we're, you know, it's almost like we're playing tag or something, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, okay. I again, I hope I don't offend anyone by saying there's no stakes with an Oxford comma, especially the people that lost millions of dollars. Blah blah blah. Whatever. We already covered that. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I wonder if that's part of it too, where like it's just kind of fun to like have a silly argument in 
in in spaces where there's so many important conversations happening mm-hmm. um i don't know like we my wife and i play a ton of board games and some of our favorite some of the games that our friends enjoy playing the most are some of those kind of like social deduction games where yeah someone's lying or you're having to figure things out and again mm-hmm. i think there's just a real joy in being able to argue and disagree and point fingers and accuse but then end the game and wrap it up and go like oh that was so silly you know um and and we're all still friends when we can't do that with things like voting rights or climate crisis or or, or things like that those sure you know those have such deep long-term impacts that we can't afford to just brush them away and say they don't matter so so being able to come to something that genuinely doesn't really matter that much for the vast <laughs> majority of us uh, unless we're lawyers um, I don't know. I think there's a freedom to that. Is that, yeah. does that sound crazy? No, I mean, I, I think that's probably true. I think, the, I think there is a lot of truth to that. I do wonder if the <laughs> going straight to arguments as if, you know, even in unimportant areas, I do wonder if that contributes to the overall toxicity of the internet, but that might be a entirely different conversation. <laughs> it could be right. Like, no, I think that's a great question. Is, is this, is this a helpful release valve that helps us de-stress and enjoy things more or is this uh something that's contributing to the overall harm right i think that's yeah i i think that's an important thing to figure out yeah no i mean there, i saw i saw a news or like a news article this is hardly news at all but i you know there was something that grabbed a few headlines in the news cycle the other day um i say the other day it was like it was a couple months ago i think um but there was a i believe she was a journalist i forget her name someone who wants to know can google this but um she posted something on twitter that was like my friends and i are having a debate is alien a horror movie yes or no i saw that and you saw that and then she followed it up with a tweet that was like my take a horror movie cannot be set in space you know which is a totally innocent inconsequential well i mean i i agree (laughs) i agree i agree but yeah right it's a totally inconsequential opinion but you know like within a few hours her name is in the trending list on twitter and like hundreds of people are just dragging her left and right and i mean she ends up i i think she ended up like on the verge of a mental breakdown like had to call her therapist or something because she just could not take like all this abuse over this totally inconsequential opinion, you know? And I'm just like, you know, and there was, there was, um, she, she, someone interviewed her and she was like, you know, after all this, someone tweeted just some random person that I don't even know tweeted at me. Like, thanks for that. It was fun to argue, argue about something low stakes for a change. And she was just like, she was a wreck because people had been beating up on her all day, you know? And it, it was just like, it's fascinating how much, perspective affects those things you know like was it inconsequential well you know not to the not to the woman who got dragged to the edge of a mental breakdown over it you know it started in well and this is one of the perils i think of of the internet i'm sure had that remained among her twitter friends right even if some of the some people had said some of the same stuff it would have hit different right if my best friend says like ribs at me versus when a stranger does it it's going to hit right Right. And we, 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 you know, we cannot, we have no idea what's going to go viral and what's not. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, yeah, like a, well, a, let me back up. Should anyone have been like abusive or mean or cruel? <laughs> to her? No, no, never, never. Okay. To do something like that. To another human being. Yeah. But I will also say like, yeah, you never, like I tweet 
goofy bad takes about stuff all the time, right? <laughs> and they've just never gone viral. I'll yeah, get like yeah. I'll get like a random troll or two saying something, and and that's fine, right? I've yeah. never had to be in her in her space where I like I've posted a hot take that the vast majority of the internet's going to disagree with, and it's gone viral. So then I've spent four days like fielding abuse, right? Yeah. That's terrible. Um, yeah, we just don't. So so yeah, like it's it's uh it's sort of that like well what should we just never post jokes like that on Twitter? <laughs> uh, which again, she she didn't really post a joke, right? But she she yeah. I mean, I don't know how new, <laughs> like. I, okay, and this is this is the curse of knowledge, right? As someone who is a horror kid, it is impossible <laughs> for you, me, me to imagine that anyone could say Alien is not a horror film and expect that people would be like, oh, okay, thank you for your opinion, right? <laughs> like, per, like if there is a community of people that is pretty uh, opinionated, it's the horror community. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and and so yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. And we we could we could we could run all the way down the trauma hole on that one too. How often horror people have to defend horror anyway. And so then when people try to take take the movies away from us, like people are like, well, let's get out really a horror movie. We're like, yes, it's a horror movie. Leave it alone. <laughs> like, is Alien really a horror movie? We're like, are you insane? Like it's so like get away from us, you know? Like, leave there, our there movies is, alone. Yeah. There is definitely a certain stripe of individual who will stop calling a movie a horror movie once it passes a certain threshold of quality right right, right? <laughs> yeah because like if it's an actually well-made movie oh that's not horror that's a psychological thriller <laughs> well yeah and, and that's a real thing and and again as someone who who like loves being in the horror community that that actually really really genuinely hurts a lot of people who love horror because a lot of the people who love horror are already have already been made to feel in several in many other spaces of their lives kind of like freaks and outsiders because they like this stuff mm -hmm. and so then when someone comes along and they're like oh i really like this thing so it can't be horror like it feels like that same kind of like rejection right like oh i could yeah. never be like those weirdos huh. so this yeah. must be a psychological you know there there is that like there's that level again we are so far than a rabbit trail <laughs> right now We've almost say, come like, full circle though <laughs> i know right like like it, it gatekeeping is such a weird thing and i wish mm -hmm. we were all myself included better at not doing it mm -hmm. um i would say this in general i started out as the gatekeepingest gatekeeper kid ever i mean we talked about my grammar gatekeeping but i, I did it in a lot of spaces and i've just become a lot more laissez-faire about it like with horror people are like well i don't know if that's horror or not i'm like i don't know there's some horrifying sequences in it I'll allow it, like whatever. Uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty loosey goosey about that kind of stuff. Same thing with languages. I'm like, look, if you understood it, it did its job, and like maybe yeah. you shouldn't get so bent out of shape about it. Um, with a lot of things, I've just become a lot more like, what was the point of this, and did it accomplish that point? Okay, well then let's not freak out so much about it, because I've seen <laughs> that gatekeeping, like it, gatekeeping, just does the opposite of that, and it's not, it's it's nearly, at least for me, it's nearly never been helpful to to build relationships right mm -hmm. i think gatekeeping is so often about keeping people out and protecting mm -hmm. uh, things that, mm -hmm. that gen, you know alien doesn't need to be protected it's like one of the greatest <laughs> movies ever made it's it's yeah. gonna be fine if someone <laughs> on twitter didn't think it was a horror movie right why, why did we why did we all get so bent out of shape i'll include myself in that you know i saw that i rolled my eyes so hard i had to <laughs> right yeah yeah so what why what who we'll be okay you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah my take 
on all this stuff. And I, I've said this on the show before, but my, my take is in a sufficiently large group of people, there's always going to be a couple people who are just being assholes, you know? You're not and wrong. They, they always poison the whole thing, you know? Um, and I don't know what you can do about that. I just, I just don't know, you know? Um, and I mean, that, that goes with everything from like debates about horror movies on Twitter to like negotiations between world powers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, that's, that's always my, my issue with people that have this rosy view of human nature and think that, you know, we can build whatever utopia they dream of. I'm always like, you know, even if the average person is a basically good person who's basically on board with whatever your utopia is, there's always going to be one person in the group who poisons it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Did you see the documentary Hail Satan? No, I haven't seen that. I don't know if you've even I heard of it. Is I that the one about the, the Satanic Temple? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I have heard of it. Yeah. D- directed by Penny Lane. Terrific. Okay. Uh, in the documentary. So, so one of the one of the things it illustrates is that a lot of the people who are attracted to TS, the Satanic Temple, if they're not, <laughs> not the Church of Satanism, there's like, there's, you know, flavors of Satanism. <laughs> um, the Satanic Temple, TSD. A lot of people who are attracted to it are attracted to it for like the punk rock anti-authoritarian spirit of it. Sure. And they look at they look at the Lucifer myth in the Bible and look at that as like Satan, you know, Satan was the ultimate first rebel. <laughs> we don't have time to get into that. I wrote a book about it. It's called Embassy for the Devil. We'll look it up. It's great. Um, <laughs> but in as the documentary is being filmed, uh, and and folks may remember this before the 2020 election, or maybe it was before the 2016 election. No, sorry, I lied. It was Somewhere around 2018, while Donald Trump was in office, okay. uh, the head of the chapter of TST in Detroit, there was a woman named Jax, uh, publicly called for his execution. Wow. And so TST as an organization is officially pacifist, nonviolent. Mm-hmm. And so they had to uh, excommunicate her. Wow. And in the documentary, you watch this group of people who all came together because they didn't like authority all of a sudden now having to exercise authority because someone went against their authority, their, their authority. Right. And (laughs) you watch them kind of being like, uh, this is gross, but we like have to, (laughs) and it made me laugh because I was like, yeah, welcome to church leadership, man. Like (laughs) sucks to suck. That's wild, man. Yeah, that is yeah. wild. It's a great, yeah. it's a great documentary. Honestly, it's it's is one of my favorite films of the year it came out. So, man, I gotta watch that. I gotta watch that. All right, we're we're running out of time. We're eight minutes from the end of the hour. So, um, let me ask you this: aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? I, I mean, I've already mentioned a lot of my exploration of language and of culture and of how those things shift but it, it's helped me to be a lot more open to perspectives that are not like me and mm-hmm. cultural cultures, cultural identities, cultural experiences that are not like mine and recognizing that just because I don't understand something at first blush doesn't mean it's wrong or stupid or dumb. Uh, it might actually mean I'm wrong or stupid or dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, to, to really, uh, to, to quote uh, from the good book, 
to really be quick to listen and slow to speak and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, really, really try to enter into conversations with the posture of a student uh, rather than uh, the posture of a teacher. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and nine times out of 10, I'm going to learn something. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say always a good lesson to learn. Um, I have three questions I ask every guest. Uh, this being a philosophical podcast, I like to poke at these questions of ontology, epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? So let me ask you this, JR. What is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? Yeah, so I, I grew up thinking of the identity as the, the self, you know, that sort of uh, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've really been compelled by a lot of uh, global South uh, thinkers and postmodern thinkers who talk about the self as more of a node in a web. So mm -hmm. I, I understand who I am through the relationships that I'm in. And mm -hmm. how I'm connected to to the people and who I choose to be connected to, who chooses to be connected to me, and how we work together uh, for mutual flourishing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's yeah. I mean, I have so, I have some sympathy for that. Um, I do feel like you're giving a bit of short shrift to Descartes there, because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of people quote Descartes out of context on that. And Descartes' point was that the only thing I can know for sure is that my consciousness exists because I directly experience my thinking and I, I cannot be deceived into thinking my thinking is real because if I'm just being I'm deceived, thinking. then I'm thinking. Yeah. So I feel like, I feel like, I feel like pitting that against this sort of communitarian spirit oh, is a little unfair uh, to Descartes. <laughs> not against, I would say, I would say that I grew from there, right. It was more sure. of an expansion out of, yeah. you know, what, is, is this thinking self the, to, the, the total of, um, mm. no, actually that myself, myself is actually created by the web of relationships that I'm in. So mm. I'm in some ways uh, fundamentally a different person than I was when I lived in Ohio or when I lived mm -hmm. in Missouri uh, or when I was growing up, but not just because my beard has more gray in it, you know, but because I'm in a, <laughs> a different web of relationships that shapes me in different ways, you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah, that's been, I mean, you said you listen to the show, so you know that's really been one of the recurring themes on the show that I keep hitting on when I talk to people is that so many of the changes of mind people undergo are, you know, less about being intellectually convinced or even being emotionally convinced and more about just, you know, being in a ge different geographical spot where they fit into the thinking of other people differently, if that makes sense. <laughs> oh, uh, so so my undergraduate degree was at a, a private Southern Baptist uh, university in Southwest Missouri, sure. uh, and and I was I was a I was the liberal kid in my university. I, there was a, an adjunct professor actually told a room full of freshmen not to speak to me because I was a heretic. Okay. <laughs> Um, I graduated from that institution in, a, in a May, and in August, I started at the University of Missouri-Columbia to get a master's degree in religious studies, uh, so it is a state university, a secular, non-confessional school, mm -hmm. and I was in, in my religious studies department, I was the wildly conservative kid. <laughs> the fundy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, yeah. I mean, they were kind enough not to call me that, but yeah. they side-eyed me a good bit, right, and that was that was like less than three months of movement. Yeah. Right. And all I, all I did was move, uh, maybe a hundred miles. <laughs> right. And yeah. go to a different space and all the, and I, I went from being the liberal to the fundy. 
like mm-hmm. that without actually changing anything I believe, you know? <laughs> and so yeah. you're right. Like that, that was such a huge, that, that shaped so much of how I began to understand the world around me just by having that singular experience. Mm. Uh, so I, I think you're totally right. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we've talked about this a bit, but maybe you have something to add. What is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? I don't think we're blank, blank slates and I don't think we're all the same. I, I think we're shaped by, uh, I think we're shaped by the, the environments that we're raised in. There's a, a Catholic theologian named Robert Barron who describes culture as like an atmosphere that we begin breathing from the moment we're born that informs mm. who we are and how we are. And so um, I think there are some basic uh, ways of knowing the world that are comparable. I think uh, the way we love one another is pretty consistent. Uh, but the, the ways that that love looks are very different. You know, in America, mm. we have an idea that we meet someone and fall in love with them and then get married to them and then cultivate that love throughout the rest of our lives. And a number of countries that do arranged marriages, they look at love as a prize that you earn at the end of a long life of working for it together. You know, and so we both mm-hmm. believe that marriage, le- that you know, marriage is a thing that is connected to love, but we understand it differently because of our culture. So, mm. um, yeah, I think I think we're all shaped in a lot of ways by the places that we are, and uh, I think that we can all find common ground together. But I think the further apart our cultures are, the more intention it takes on the part of both parties to to do that. Mm. For sure, for sure. And finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? What do you think? So this is a space where I have uh, been holding things much more loosely lately. Hmm. Um, These days, I would say I am more likely to find truth on the margins of power than at the centers of power. And I know it when I find it uh, because it leads to good and flourishing for all people. So I'm a little bit mercenary in that regard, or I guess we say utilitarian philosophy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I'm a pastor, I'm an evangelical pastor. And so, you know, we take very seriously where Jesus says, I am the the way, the truth and the life. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there is a framework around that, uh, that there's something about who Jesus is and the way he is in the world that is truth. Uh, And for me, that's about that, like, moving to the margins of power and working for the good of all people like that. That's what I see Jesus doing. And so uh, for me, that's, that is almost something that I, I, I look at truth as more of a behavior than a proposition. Um, we do truth more than we hold truth. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, there's definitely a tendency in Protestant Christianity, especially to think of truth as just this set of beliefs that you hold. You know, you you sit there and you believe things really, really hard. <laughs> but I, I think um, I think St. James in particular has a lot to say about about that, um, that faith without works is dead, I believe is the catchphrase oh. from his book. <laughs> yeah. And to listen to listen to us, us being evangelicals, like do backflips trying to understand how that still just means truth is propositional. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I mean, there's something like even outside of religion, there's something very true, if you'll forgive the word about like, if you believe something, but you do not act on that belief, like in what sense can you really claim to believe it? Right? If you say, I believe it's 
cold in here, but you don't turn up the heat, you know, <laughs> like that's the dumbest, dumbest example ever, but you know, like, but pretty easy I mean, to wrap our brains around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, like, what does belief mean if it doesn't mean entrusting your actions to a proposition, you know, um, I don't know. Um, I think that's, you know, I think that, I think that's definitely something that a lot of people need to think about. It's definitely something that those of us who either are Protestants or, you know, exist in heavily Protestant influenced cultures, you know, need to grapple with, because I think that's, you know, even people who have rejected <laughs> Protestantism or Christianity just, just kind of still have that in the air they breathe, so to speak. Um, well, and I, th I think, I think we see it in a lot of places in our culture right now. We see it when we're talking about like race, right? Mm -hmm, Where mm -hmm. people want to say, I don't think I'm racist mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't think bad thoughts about people who don't look like, right? Right. But yeah. when we measure, when we measure things in our culture, like real measurable, tangible things, and there are clear discrepancies that are racialized and we say, well, if, if none of us are racist, how is this happening? Right. Mm -hmm. No one wants to talk about that because like, well, but I don't, I don't think I've never, I don't, I don't use the N word. So yeah, must not be racist, you know? And yeah. instead of looking at like, well, can we, can we measure this? Can we, can we discern how racist or racialized things are? And then maybe whether we feel it or think it or not do something about it. Sure. Um, and yeah, I, I think you're right. That that's a legacy of a particular way of being Protestant um, that, that certainly has shaped a lot of our culture and our value uh, that I'd like to see go away. All right. Sounds like a good place to end it. Um, before we wrap up, <laughs> do you want to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your book? Yeah. So I am at JR Foresteros everywhere that's worth finding, uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, probably had a Foursquare account at some point. Um, but yeah, if I'm somewhere, it's at JR Foresteros. Uh, my book is available at Amazon or from InterVarsity Press. Uh, or at my house, if you come down to Texas and want some smoke brisket, let me know. Just give me a little bit of heads up. Um, and then, yeah, I co-host the Fascinating Podcast. So we're uh, we're putting out new episodes right now. We're in our seventh season. So, uh, and then I have a couple articles going up this month. One, one at tour on the relationship between vampires and Christianity. Uh, that's going to hang out in purity culture a little bit. And oh, then wow. one, with, one with Sojourners on at the the value of horror fiction for spiritual formation. So, you know, it's right spooky on. season, so. Yeah, no, that, uh, that, that tour piece sounds particularly fascinating. I'm gonna have to check that out. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, JR. It was a blast, Luke. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. Likewise. Yeah. Um, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke <laughs> T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or at my website, LukeTHarrington.com. Or you can email the show at changemymindpod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Blake and I decided to use that conversation to close out the series mainly because of the topic of conversation, uh, because of the, um, the Oxford comma thing, you know? Um, but as I was editing this episode, I realized there is a very random way in which it's perfect 
for the end of the series, just beyond the topic. Um, now, I don't know if you uh, noticed <laughs> about midway through that episode, there was a little chirp. Um, and that was me getting an email. Uh, and that email really changed everything for me. I mean, it's just totally random that it happened during that conversation that I got that email. Uh, yes, I should have had my device switched to do not disturb, um, <laughs> which I did start doing after that. Um, but this email, it, it was a big deal. Like I, I was struggling to uh, focus on the conversation for the second half because I was uh, distracted by the existence of that email. Um, hopefully that didn't come through uh, so much. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, let me, let me tell you a little bit about that email. It, it changed everything, but not in the way that I thought it would. Um, essentially, uh, there's another podcast out there, a much better podcast than this one. Um, and in fact, if you're looking for something to listen to after this one is over, I highly recommend this one. It's blocked and reported. Um, it's, a uh, journalists, Jesse Single and Katie Herzog just basically talk about all the stupid stuff people argue about on the internet. It's, it's pretty great. It's, um, I highly recommend it. Um, and a while ago they advertised for uh, a part-time position, uh, as a research assistant on their show. Um, and I think they reached out specifically to their Patreon supporters. It was Patreon at the time um, for uh, applications for that. So I went ahead and applied. Um, you know, I kind of looked at it. I was like, yeah, I could do that. Um, this is a great opportunity. So I sent him a, a resume. Uh, this was the week before my family was about to go on vacation. So I really just kind of rushed it. I didn't put that much effort into it. But then uh, when I was having this conversation with JR, I got an email from them that said, congratulations, you're one of 15 finalists for this position. And then it asked me to do kind of a, kind of an audition, essentially just, you know, we want you to send us some of the day-to-day -day work you would be doing for us, essentially. Um, now, if you listen to Blocked and Reported, you know that I did not get that position. Um, went to a guy named Tracy Woodgrains, who frankly, uh, does a better job than I ever could have. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not bitter about that. Um, but the email, like I said, the email did not change my life the way I thought it would, but it did change everything for me because as soon as I saw my wife that night, I, I couldn't wait to tell her, you know, I was really excited. I said, you know, Julia, which is my wife's name. I said, Jules, I, uh, I just I found out I'm a finalist for like my dream gig. And she just kind of stares at me. And she says, you know, why in the world would you want another gig? She says, you're already stressed out of your mind. You're, you're miserable all the time. I need you to be the not stressed one so that you can handle the kids and I can focus on my job. And I just said, oh, I hadn't thought about things that way at all. Um, 
Because the truth is, I've been at this content creation game, writing and doing podcasts for, you know, almost 10 years now, um, since my first child was born back in uh, 2013. Um, you know, before that, I had been teaching. I was teaching high school. Um, and then our first daughter was born, and I kind of lost my teaching gig. And... You know, it was it was kind of one of those things where I was like, well, I wasn't really enjoying teaching. And if I kept this up, I would have to immediately hand over my paycheck to a daycare center, you know. Um, so I might as well just stay home with kids and write, which is what I really want to do. And, you know, I can hopefully bring in some supplementary income that way. And that way my wife can keep working at her job, which was nursing at the time. Um and I've just been kind of cobbling together work in various places since then, you know. Um, and for a long time, I had this mindset of like, I need to take every opportunity in front of me because you never know what is going to lead to the next big thing. And also because I need to bring in as much supplementary income as I can or else I'm useless, and at that point, it was like I was doing everything. <laughs> I was stretched so thin. Um, I was running social media for a site called Christ and Pop Culture. I was also writing a regular column for them, sort of on and off. I know it's weird to say I was writing a regular column on and off, but that was kind of where we were at the time. Um, I was, you know, writing two hours a day, I was, I was working a part-time gig writing for grunge.com, which is sort of a clickbait factory. I was writing uh, essentially Sunday school materials for Lifeway, which is the Southern Baptist publisher. And yes, I know the Southern Baptists are mild, mired in scandal right now, but I don't want to talk about that. Um, I was not involved in the scandal. I was just doing contract work for them. Um, I just, I had so much on my plate. I had this podcast as well, obviously, and then my wife says that thing to me about why would you want another gig? And I'm like Ron Livingston at the beginning of Office Space. If you've seen that movie, um, I know that movie's like almost a quarter century old now. Um, but uh, it's a classic, right? Like if you haven't seen it, you know, it's about these schlubs who are stuck in kind of a mid-level management, mid-level management positions, just working in cubicles all day and how awful that is. Um, anyway, the main character at the beginning, he, uh, he gets hypnotized by a psychiatrist, you know, a professional psychiatric hyp hypnotist. Um, and just as he's fully hypnotized, the psychiatrist dies on him. So he never really wakes out of his hypnotic state. Like all of a sudden, he's just completely, completely relaxed. And he realizes, I don't care about any of the things I'm doing. And I don't have to care. And that's kind of what kicks off the whole movie. But... That's exactly how I was. Like I was walking around for the next few days as just this sort of euphoric zombie, if you'll pardon the expression. Just like all this stuff I'm doing, I don't have to do it. Like 
all my worries about you know taking whatever whatever opportunities there were it was like well 99% of opportunities lead nowhere you know and all my worries about bringing in money to support my family it's like well my wife is in a very well-paying job now like she works in IT now she's no longer a, a floor nurse at a hospital like she is bringing plenty home to feed a family of four and then some like I don't have to worry about all this stuff anymore I can just drop everything like since I was six years old the dream has been to be a full-time novelist and it's it's right there like it's right in front of me now all I have to do is reach out and take it you know I had finally landed an agent for my fiction uh, back in August of that year I had signed with her um, and to be honest prior to that I really kind of had no clue where my career was headed it was like my nonfiction debut, Murder Bears, Moonshine and Mayhem, had come out in um, August of 2020. And I really thought that, that you know, that was going to be my big debut with a major publisher. I really thought maybe that was going to be my thing from now on was I was going to write funny Christian books for uh, for HarperCollins Christian Publishing. Um, but the book did not sell well, you know, Um and after that, it was very much, well, what's next, you know, because um, I really didn't have anything in the pipeline. Um, I had kind of put my entire life on hold to promote that book during COVID lockdown, you know, because with my kids home 24-7, I suddenly had way less time, you know, so I had put any future projects on hold in order to crank out content promoting the book. And then when the book didn't sell... It was like, well, I have no idea what's going on, what what's coming next for me. Um, and so I just ended up leaning hard into the try everything, do everything mode, you know, just take every opportunity, uh, which is why I was going a little bit nuts by the end of 2021. Um, you know, but then I got an offer on my novel from my agent, Stacy Condla. Um, and at first it was like, well, cool, I've got one more thing, but then, you know, I thought about it, um, took a vacation in early October and then I got that email in late October when I was recording this conversation with JR and talked to my wife and I realized, no, this is going to be the thing. Um, back in January... So a couple of months after this conversation with JR happened, uh, Jason Pargin, one of my favorite authors, uh, published a piece on his Substack called So You Want to Be a Content Creator, um, just about kind of the travails and joys of making content for the internet. And he, he wrote something that just really resonated with me. Um, it says, you'd be shocked at how many creative people are locked in a grind of making stuff that grants them neither money nor joy out of some vague obligation to their fans. For me, I don't know if it was <laughs> obligation to my fans. 
um, so much as just obligation to myself or my family or something, you know. Um, but the, the point was well made, you know, that I don't have to crank out content. I just don't, you know. Um, I don't have to crank out content for the sake of content. The internet might may be built on content for the sake of content, but I don't have to structure my life around it, right? Now, if someone were somewhere were offering me like a living wage <laughs> to crank out content constantly for the internet, um, I might consider it. Um, but the fact is, as Jason put it, the constant grind was doing nothing for me. It was not making a lot of money for me. It was not bringing me joy anymore. And it was not really even bringing in a bunch of fans, you know, like, <laughs> um, bringing in an audience is less a matter of hard work and much more a matter of dumb luck. Uh, so I've just decided to kind of let that go for the moment and just let myself write and let myself write the things I want to write, which is essentially horror novels, um, dark fiction, if you want to class it up a little bit, psychological thrillers. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, when I started this podcast, I started it mainly because I felt like my writing career was going nowhere. You know, this was 2019. And I, I talked, I talked a bit about this on my Substack. Um, I had poured my heart and soul into two books that year. Um, the 2018, 2019 school year, you know, uh, one of which was murder bears, moonshine and mayhem, which you can read for free now by signing up for my Substack. Um, and the other of which was a horror novel that I hope to sell soon via my agent. Um, but I had poured my heart and my soul into those two books. And at the time, just I could not sell them anywhere. You know, I had written Murder Bears under contract with a, like an independent publisher. And then when the book was done, they dropped it, you know, and that was shortly after I had come to the realization that no one seemed interested in my novel either, you know? Um, so I just, I had these two books and they were going nowhere. And I was like, well, let's just start a podcast, you know? Um, and here we, here I am, you know, three years later and one of those books has been published. Uh, and the other I've landed representation for, um, Hopefully we'll find a home for it soon, you know. Um, so I am actually right where I desperately wanted to be when I started this podcast. You know, the podcast was started out of frustration over my writing career. And now my writing career is actually where I need it to be. Um, so I'm really moving on with joy, you know. Um, so... Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Uh, we've met a lot of really interesting people, a lot of people that I feel extremely lucky to have gotten to talk to. Um, I'll probably publish something on my Substack about this, you know, just what I've learned about it, uh, maybe my, my 10 favorite episodes or something. I don't know. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, probably by the, by the end of the month, though, I'll try to publish something on my Substack. Um, 
I think I've learned a lot from this show. I hope that you've learned a lot. Um, I hope that it's inspired you to be a more open-minded and empathetic person uh, going forward. Um, you know, I don't feel optimistic <laughs> about where this uh, country is headed politically or culturally. Um, and I know there are a lot of people who agree with me about that um, on both sides of the political aisle, if you'll forgive the trite expression. Um, but that's why I wanted to do this show was to remind people that it is okay to sort of exist in those marginal spaces ideologically, you know, that not everybody has to join a team. Not everybody has to, you know, pick up a weapon and uh, charge forward in the culture war, you know, like there's so much more to reality and truth and the people around us than that. You know, I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it on the show, um, but it has become my battle cry, uh, if you'll forgive the expression, which is that if there is a culture war, I don't want to fight. I want to be the Red Cross in the culture war, you know, charging into the battlefield to heal the wounded, irrespective of which, which side they were fighting for. Um, and I hope that all of you will join me in that. And honestly, that's why I'm going into fiction. You know, that I mean, that's why I started the show and it's why I'm going into fiction because I don't like being the guy with the answers. I don't think my answers are particularly good, honestly. Um, I'm What I'm good at is asking questions. Um, and obviously an interview show is one place to do that, but... Um, I think the realm of fiction is an even better place to do it. Um, I, I don't want to preach at people. I just want to hold up a mirror and ask people why. Um, so anyway, I hope you'll follow me into the next chapter of my life here. Um, I don't know uh, if there's a ton of audience overlap between interview philosophy podcast and dark fiction. Uh, I'm hoping there is. I'm hoping that you'll uh, at least give me a chance <laughs> going forward. Um, and I'm really hoping that you will go over and sign up for my Substack so I can stay in touch with you in the future. Um, once again, that is luketharrington.substack.com. That's going to be my newsletter. Uh, if you will go there and just enter your email address to receive my monthly updates in your email inbox, I would really appreciate it. I'm just going to try to send you something fun to read that'll brighten your day a little bit every month. And I will also, obviously, keep you updated on what's going on with my books, you know, when you can expect my next novel to come out. Um... And just as a special bonus, you'll also get a free copy of both of my already published books for signing up. So Ophelia Alive, A Ghost Story, which was my debut novel. It's a 
literary psychological thriller. Uh, if you like ghosts, if you like Hamlet, if you like zombies, if you like depressing stories of being stuck in higher education, um, if you like endless purple prose, you will love this book. Uh, and also, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Be Mused, and Hopefully Informed, which was my attempt to cross over into humorous nonfiction Um once again, just a tour through the weirdest parts of the Bible, written with a general audience in mind. Um, if you're interested in ancient history and ancient texts, whether you're Christian or not, you will probably find something to enjoy in it. Um, so once again, you can get both of those books for free by signing up for my Substack newsletter at luketherrington.substack.com. If that's too much to remember, just go to LukeTHarrington.com. There's a link right at the top of the page to it. Um, so once again, I have really enjoyed going on this journey with all of you for the last three years. Uh, I'm so glad you decided to come with me. Uh, please join me over on my Substack, and I look forward to what's next. Change My Mind was produced by Tamar Harrington. It was executive produced by Blake Collier. It was edited by Jonathan Clausen, and our hosting was provided by the Raven Creek Social Club. Thanks one more time to all of them. They all did a great job of supporting the program. I really appreciate them. I really appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind. I'm Luke T. Harrington, signing off for the last time. And please don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.